If you have your Bible, find your way to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. And good morning, Berean. You ready to go to work? Ready to do this? It's going to be a fun morning. You're going to be so glad you came to church this morning after we get done. Um, Habakkuk chapter 2. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, maybe this is the first time you've been here in a few weeks. Or we've started a series a couple of weeks ago called Uncertain. And what we're looking at is how do we navigate the uncertainties of life? Because one thing I know about you is you're going to go through a time in life when life is uncertain. It may be your job. It may be your money. It may be your family. It may be your church. Hopefully not. But, you know, you never know. There's seasons of life where you just wonder, what's the future hold? Um, Where is this thing going? And the Bible deals with that. And it instructs us on how we as followers of Jesus... Uh, can navigate uncertain times. And maybe if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you would just listen to the hope that you can have of being able to navigate with peace the uncertainties of life. So, Habakkuk chapter 2, fun, fun text. You know, one of the things I love about just preaching through a book is the text demands the topic, not the pastor. And uh, so this will be a fun one this morning. Let's stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5, and we'll, we'll just go down to verse 14 in our scripture reading, but we'll look at the whole rest of the chapter. Um, this is God's authoritative word. Habakkuk 2, verse 5 says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples and you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Lord, I need your help. And I trust you this morning to do the work that only you can do. Give us a moment of clarity. Help us be real. And speak to us your truth. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, Pam, honey, did you know that your father started his own business? Really? Dad, that's great. Oh, wow. Yes, and I thought with my knowledge and experience, why should I allow retirement to stop me? I really admire that. Yeah. So what is it? What's, uh, what's the new venture? Well, let me ask you a question, Greg. Let's just say you have kids and you want to get out of the house, spend a night on the town, you know. 
So you hire a babysitter, someone you think you can trust. References, work experience, it all checks out fine. But then how do you really know for certain that your loved ones are safe with this stranger? I mean, can you ever really trust another human being, Greg? Sure, I think so. No, the answer is you cannot. Let me show you something. Take a look at this, Greg. What's this look like to you? Um, this looks like a teddy bear. Smile, you're a nanny camera. Ah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen <laughs> these things advertised on TV. No, no, not like this you haven't. Take a look. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Hi. Where's the other camera? Right here in this decorative artifact. Huh. That's great. Our camera's are motion activated, so they begin taping as soon as they sense any movement, and we can hide them in anything. We hide them in mirrors, lamps, televisions, you name it. So no matter where you go, we'll be watching you. <laughs> I'm glad that is not my dad. Oh, boy, would I have been in trouble. But you know, that clip really raises a very important question. Do you find it easy to trust other people. You see, what I've learned is that when we were younger, it was a lot easier to trust, wasn't it? I mean, we didn't know a lot, so we took our parents' word for it. We assumed they knew what they were talking about, even though they clearly did not some of the time. We ate, for the most part, what they put before us. We, we had what we like to call faith like a child. But then we got older, and we started experiencing life. Things happened to us along our life path like we were lied to. You ever been lied to? Relationships that we thought were secure dissolved. Contracts that we thought were, were of good standing weren't. We've been betrayed. We, we've, we've gone to people that we thought would be there to help us, only to hurt us. Maybe for some of you, the church, the very place that you thought you could trust people, is the very place where you got burned. And what happens in life as we get older and we experience these kinds of things, is then when we enter into a relationship, one of the first questions we ask is, can I trust this person? And for some of you in this room, you've been so burned in life that you keep people at a distance for quite a while until you can build up trust. And the truth is, folks, is that sometimes that reality in our horizontal life bleeds over into our vertical life. Namely, the question of can I trust others becomes can I trust God? And I bet you some of you have been at a point in your life where you've asked that question. Can I trust God? Can I believe His promises? Do I really believe that God is working to good in this situation? Can I trust God? That's the crossroad that Habakkuk is at. He wonders, can I trust that God is doing the right thing? And if you've not been here the last few weeks, just kind of a quick review in terms of where we're at in Habakkuk's story is Habakkuk looked around at his nation, the nation of Judah. And what he saw was he saw people living sinful lifestyles. They lived however they wanted to live. 
The leadership was a complete joke. The law of God, the Word of God did not matter to anybody anymore. And Habakkuk comes to God and just says, Hello? Are you going to do anything? Are you going to stop this? Are you just going to let this keep going on? And God says, No, I'm not. In fact, Habakkuk, I'm doing a work. And guess what that work's going to be? What is it, God? Tell me, tell me. I'm sending the Babylonians to judge you. But how can a God who always does what's right do something so wrong? It's like God coming to you saying, you've been making some bad choices, and so I'm sending somebody to lecture you on how not to make bad choices. And you say, okay, great, who is it? It's Miley Cyrus. What? How, how would you use her to lecture me on making wise decisions? That's what Habakkuk thinks. How can you use a nation that's more unrighteous than we are to judge us? Are you going to let them get away with it? In fact, in verse 13 of chapter 1, it's, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Are you just going to let them do this? And God is teaching Habakkuk a lesson. God is teaching us a lesson that we discovered last week in verse 4 of chapter 2, which is, the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, come here. Will you trust me? I know it's confusing. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you don't have all the answers to your question. But will you trust me? Do you believe that I know what I'm doing? And will you live by faith? And so what we see in Habakkuk 2 in verses 5 through the rest of the chapter is God giving Habakkuk the answer that he needs so that Habakkuk will know that he can trust God. And God does it in a rather strange way. Now, if this is the first time you've come to Berean, if you're visiting this morning or you came with a neighbor, boy, did you pick the right morning. Because this text is all about the judgment of God. In fact, look at what it says over and over again. In fact, five times. Look at verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing away. Do you get the point? Hey, footnote, just kind of mark this down in your journal. When God says woe to you five times, that's not a good thing. Okay? Woe, 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 woe to the Babylonians. What is God doing? He's telling Habakkuk about his judgment that's going to come upon the Babylonians. Now, listen, I realize the judgment of God is not a popular topic to talk about at church. Some of you are very uncomfortable that we're going to talk about that this morning. In fact, if you go across the street to Lifeway or you go to some Christian bookstore, you're probably not going to find a book entitled How to Have Your Wrath-Filled Life Now. <laughs> that will not be on the bestsellers list. You think about all the songs we sing at church. 
There are so many great songs about God's love, about God's mercy, about God's grace. But when's the last time you sang a song about God's wrath? You know like that song we sing here, How Deep the Father's Wrath for Us? You like that song? Or, or how about the song we sing, the contemporary song, Your Wrath is Amazing? You know that song? Or that, that song that we teach our children, Jesus wraths me this I know. You know? No! We don't sing songs like that because we don't like to talk about the judgment of God. We don't like to think about the judgment of God. But look right here. If you don't deal with the judgment of God, you are not seeing God rightly and you're not dealing with your own life honestly. Because God is not who you want Him to be. He is who He is. He is, after all, God. It would be like me writing my wife a letter and saying, here are the things that I love about you. I love this about you, and I love that about you, and I love this. And what I really love is your red hair. Well, the problem with that is my wife has blonde hair. So her response to that letter would be, this is sweet, what, what you wrote. The problem is, it's clearly not to me. And the lesson that we've got to learn, Brian, when we come to texts like this, or even if you're brand new to church, is that we have to receive God based on how He has revealed Himself in His Word, not how we have fashioned Him in our mind. There is a verse in Psalms that says, For you thought God was altogether like you. Not so much. God tells Habakkuk here about His judgment. Woe, woe, woe to Him. And we see some characteristics in this passage that are true of all of those, whether it be a nation or a person, whom God pours wrath or judgment upon. Uh, notice, for instance, back in verse 5 we see, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Here's the first kind of slogan or motto, if you will, about those who receive the judgment of God. It's all about me. It's pride. Or as this verse talks about, the arrogant man who is never at rest. And you know what? Augustine called pride the mother sin. Namely because it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? When God said, hey, you can eat this and you can't eat that and here's the way life is supposed to be lived. And what did Adam and Eve do? They said, no thanks. We'll live and eat what we want to eat. It's what D.A. Carson calls the degotting of God. We become, though we wouldn't word it like this, we become God. That is, we live life how we want to live it because after all, we're number one. It is about me. And we're all born this way. I mean, how many of you parents here had to teach your children to be selfish? Anybody? That come natural to them? Yeah. I've got a seven, a five, and a three-year-old. Totally natural. There's never a moment we're riding in the van where one of them says, you know, it's completely within my right to pick our video, but I gladly submit graciously to my siblings. That's never happened, and if it does, miracle. Because we're all selfish. 
There's, there's a pride that is the mother of all sin. And, and, it, and it creates this false image of who we are. Like we think more about ourselves and we think higher than ourselves than we ought to. And I realize that in our culture, self-esteem is the big deal. But in the Bible, Christ-esteem is the big deal. That's a whole other sermon. The issue here is that pride has a tendency to make us think higher of ourselves than we should. And that's why the text says that wine is like a traitor. Because if you've ever been around somebody who's drunk, they feel like they're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I can do anything. I, I, I have a bigger image, a false image, than what I really am. And that's exactly what pride does. And that motto of it's all about me leads to another one. That is, it's all about more. Notice the second part of verse 5. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. In other words, because it's about me and getting what I want, I pursue a life that's all about getting what I want. And God describes here a nation or a person who allows their arrogance to bleed over into discontentment where it's all about, i got to have more. i got to have more. I've got to have more. But the problem with more is it's never enough. It's never enough. There's always more lands to conquer if you're a nation. There's always more stuff to get. There's always more money to be made. I, I love what Dave Ramsey says. He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. <laughs> and that's because we're on a mission for more. It is the, the picture in Ecclesiastes of chasing after the wind. I love that imagery. And listen, some of you this morning, that's what you're doing. You're chasing the wind. You ever caught the wind? Not for long. And that's the picture here of somebody who I'm living life on my own terms and that leads me to have to get more. And then that leads to all kinds of other sins. Just quickly, in verse 6, you see theft. Woe to him who heaps up what, his, what is not his own. You see corruption. In verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Uh, verse 12, you see oppression. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And, and so this leads to all kinds of other things. It's, it's, I'll take what's not mine. I'll undercut this. I'll cut these corners. Why? Don't you realize I'm trying to build a kingdom here? It's the Babel. It's the Tower of Wes. It's the kingdom of me. And so all means can be justified in my mind as I'm chasing after more. And then it leads to the third kind of motto, if you will. So it's all about me becomes it's all about more, which then becomes it's all about the moment. Because notice what they do in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. You go on in verse 16 about drink, this, this idea of, of sharing the cup. There's also sexual conquest. It's a picture here of, I've, and this is what happened with Babylon, is it's all about me, so it's all about more. I conquer the lands, and then I sit back and I enjoy it. 
I invite everybody to the party and I make them drink up. It's the, the black-eyed peas, the p party every day. I p p party every day, right? It's all about enjoying the now and living for the moment. Because look at all I've conquered. And then here's the last kind of slogan we see, both for individuals and for the nation of Babylon, is it's all about the monuments. And we see that in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own, in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Oh, oh, this... Boy, it doesn't get any more practical than this. Here it is. I want to live life for me, so i got to get more, and I'm going to enjoy that more now. And then, when I die, I hope that I've built enough monuments that when they throw dirt on my coffin, people will be able to say that I mattered. And what I did is I spent my life making man-made idols man-made monuments so that people would feel like I matter. Hank Aaron, remember Hank Aaron? He wrote in his book something very, very insightful. He said this, When I feel depressed, I drive to the stadium, I look at my statue and say, I am somebody. I am somebody because they applauded. I am somebody because 50,000 fans said I am. I am somebody because I have awards on the wall. Some of you are living purely for the purpose that one day you'll be able to look back and say, I did it. I raised my family. I built my retirement account. I built my business. Look at the monuments I have built. Come here for just a moment. Can you think of a nation, just brainstorm for a moment, a nation or a person that's all about living for themselves so that they can get stuff to enjoy that stuff, hoping that that'll make their life matter. And you thought this was an irrelevant book in the Old Testament. That's the story of humanity. And God's point to Habakkuk is you can build your tower, but one day that tower's coming down. And it's not because stuff is bad, and it 